Good day, everyone, and welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've decided to join. Today, we are going to spend the entire hour reflecting on a phrase, and it's one you may have heard at least a few times in the last few years. That phrase is, the cruelty is the point. The cruelty is the point. During the presidency of Donald Trump, that became an oft-used catchphrase among pundits to criticize the former president and his brand of politics and followers. But that phrase itself was actually coined by Adam Serwer, who is a staff writer at The Atlantic. He came up with it back in 2018 in one of many essays he wrote about Trump. And now he has a new book that delves into the inherent and systemically cruel uh, aspects of the Trumpian political movement and brand, as well as its past and future in the political framework of our nation. The book is a collection of essays titled The Cruelty is the Point, the Past, Present, and Future of Trump's America. And Adam Serwer joins us now to discuss it. Adam, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me. So uh, this book is, as I said, a series of essays based on this line you came up with during the Trump presidency. The cruelty is the point. That's the name of a piece you wrote in The Atlantic back in 2018. Talk about the origin and context around how you came up with that phrase at that particular point in Trump's presidency. Sure. Well, first off, I just want to say that, uh, you know, Trump highlighted the role of cruelty in American politics, but it's a false sense of comfort to think that it's all behind us now that he's gone and a misinterpretation to think that it started with him. Uh, it neither started nor ended with one man, and it's not going to. Um, the book is, you know, most people think of cruelty as an individual problem, and it is that, uh, you know, it's part of human nature. All human beings are part of cruelty, uh, are capable of cruelty. But what I'm focused on in the book is cruelty as a part of politics, specifically the way that it has been used in the past to demonize certain groups so you can justify denying people their basic rights under the Constitution and exclude them from the political process. And the phrase itself was inspired, or, you know, I wrote it after uh, watching the president um, at a rally in 2018. It was during the Kavanaugh hearings. Um, and Christine Blasey Ford had accused Kavanaugh of uh, sexual assault. They were both teenagers. Um, testified that she, uh, one of the things that she remembered most vividly about the incident was that, uh, was the laughter. Uh, she said that Kavanaugh and uh, a childhood friend who were present uh, were laughing at her during um, the event. And what struck me was that the president zeroed in on this detail, much as many of us did, um, and then he held her up for mockery in front of a jeering crowd uh, that mm -hmm. enjoyed mocking her. Um, and it seemed very clear to me that this was, um, you know, the president was being cruel. He was, he was, he had specifically uh, honed in on a personal detail that he was going to use um, to cause this woman pain. Now, perhaps you feel, uh, you know, that she was being dishonest. She wasn't telling the truth, but even if that is the case, um, the, uh, it is reckless not to consider how, uh, you know, holding a woman who has come forward with an allegation of sexual assault up for that kind of ridicule is going to affect other women who, you know, people you may care about. Um, 
who will similarly uh, or will similarly be afraid to come forward as a result of not wanting to receive that kind of treatment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and, but what, what was clear to me about that event, though, was that everybody was having a very good time. The president was having a good time. The crowd at, at the rally was having a good time. And they were having a good time for reasons that, as I said, are, are very much related to human nature. If you've ever been a child, you can remember what it's like to see, you know, the cool kids tease the nerdy kid and sort of form their community around the exclusion mm-hmm. of the children who are not cool enough to be a part of their group. Um, and this is really that elevated to a political level. And that's, you know, what makes it dangerous. So, so there are a number of dynamics, I think, at work and what you were just talking about in that example, uh, but but also in this larger uh, this larger framework uh, that you're talking about. But I want to zero in on on one of them first. This idea of kind of forming a group that excludes other people that that makes the people who are in the group feel good because they're part of something, uh, but also makes them feel good because they're able to say that that other people are not part of it. Um, in some ways, that strikes me as uh, a, a rather sad dynamic of this support for, for, for Donald Trump because I, I do think that so many of the people who indulge that and, and get energized by that are themselves people who feel like they have been, right or wrong, um, excluded. Uh, people who feel like uh, they haven't had the opportunities that they might have thought they should have had. Uh, people who haven't had the opportunity to, to go to college, for instance, or, or earn money at the level that they, that they want to. That, that the, the very impetus for this sense of exclusive company comes from a feeling of having been excluded uh, for a, a long time. Can you talk about how those two things kind of relate here? Yeah, I mean, look, uh, certainly, it's certainly the case, you know, even separating out uh, some of Trump's supporters who were who economically struggling. Um, you know, it's certainly the case that Donald Trump was excluded from spaces he wanted access to and was angry as a result. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I, I, you know, I, I don't feel any particularly pity for him for that. Uh, <laughs> but I want to distinguish between, you know, that feeling of exclusion, um, you know, or, or, or grievance over something legitimate, like not earning enough money to take care of yourself and your family. And, you know, the response to that, these are two different things. Uh, you can have a completely legitimate grievance and respond to it in a way that is not legitimate. Um, and what Trump did was he said, your problems are the result of these vulnerable groups. Yes. And I will solve those problems by using the mailed fist of the state to crack down on, on these vulnerable constituencies uh, uh, that are causing all of your problems. Now that requires an ideological lens that is willing to view Donald Trump's answers as genuine solutions to the problem. Because if you look at uh, you know, you, you just look at the demographics of, of the election in 2016. The Obama administration really did not, uh, you know, they get, had provided an inadequate response to the uh, Great Recession. And we know that because, uh, you know, the, the recovery was very slow. And Donald Trump took advantage of that uh, slow recovery because the Obama administration was not ambitious enough in its stimulus. It did not do enough to keep homeowners in their homes. Um, but uh, minority voters who, who went 
um, you know, disproportionately for the Democrats, Black and Latino voters in 2016, um, you know, they were not swayed by those appeals. It's not because they weren't also suffering. It's because an ideological lens that basically placed them as responsible for the problems that, uh, you know, the, the voters Trump was appealing to, uh, you know, that Trump, an ideological frame that placed them as responsible for the problems that Trump voters were having did not appeal to them because it made them, you know, in some sense, if not the villains of the story, the people responsible for the nation's problems. Um, And so it it, it did not make, you know, in 2016, Trump did not make a whole lot of inroads into those communities, not because those communities weren't suffering, but because his answers did not make sense. Uh, So it's important to separate between people having genuine problems, which, you know, obviously, uh, you know, we live in a very unequal country um, where uh, a growing minority of people uh, are hoarding a substantial amount of the wealth. And so it makes sense uh, that people have like genuine problems and they're angry about them. Um, That's justified. What's not justified is then deciding that you are going to respond to that by disenfranchising or hurting vulnerable communities um, you know, because the man, because this man tells you that that's going to solve your problems. Yeah, I mean, agree that there's no justification uh, for what they're doing. But but this idea of the ease with which someone like Donald Trump comes along and sells that message to a, a large number of Americans, I think, is about that feeling. It is about that feeling that people have, that so many people have that they have been excluded, that they have been left out. And again, whether that feeling is is itself legitimate or not, um, there is something about, uh, it's it's like the kid on the, uh, the playground who, who was bullied, who uh, grows up to find the opportunity to, to try to turn that around on someone else. There's something very, uh, I guess, very easy about that, that transition that I think uh, animates this 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 dynamic that you're that you're writing about. Well, I think there's a couple of things going on here. One is that obviously the country has changed um, in a cultural sense. It's changed very rapidly over the past 20 years. I think for people who once felt that they their preferences and beliefs define the discourse, um, they suddenly found those premises challenged very quickly. I mean, if you think about it, in 2009, Barack Obama's position on same-sex marriage. Uh, was that he would oppose marriage and was for civil unions. Now, that position today would get you called a bigot. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're someone who is of, uh, you know, of, of, of a deeply observant religious faith that does not um, believe uh, in marriage equality, uh, that r- kind of rapid cultural change can be very frightening to you. Um, and, uh, you know, I understand that. Um, but I think the larger issue, and I, you know, I try to depersonalize it, the structure of our system allows one party to hold power without winning a majority of the votes, um, whether that's through gerrymandering the House, whether it's through Senate malapportionment, uh, whether it's through the Electoral College. Um, and this, uh, in, in this segment of the population that it has this great political influence is basically one of the most conservative segments of the American electorate. And if you're the party representing that segment of the electorate, it becomes more urgent to persuade that group that they're on the verge of destruction, uh, their whole way of life is going to be destroyed. And so anything they do to prevent that destruction is justified. Um, And so that's how you end up 
with, you know, uh, the things that Donald Trump is doing suddenly go from being uh, nasty or cruel to heroic deeds in defense of a population that is simply trying to preserve itself uh, in the, you know, against uh, an oncoming apocalypse. Now, it's a false frame. It's what he's using to manipulate his voters. I don't believe it to be true. I don't even believe it's true that the Republican Party could not win a majority of the votes um, as long as it moderated on particular issues. Um, but that is the uh, political strategy that Republicans have chosen. And because, and it remains viable because of the structure of the American political system. Um, if they did not have those structural advantages, if they could not um, take advantage of the counter-majoritarian levers of American democracy the way that they can, I do not think they w- would be pursuing this strategy. And I think our politics would look very different. Hmm. I'm talking with uh, Adam Serwer. He's a staff writer at The Atlantic and author of the newly released book, The Cruelty is the Point, the Past, Present, and Future of Trump's America. We're talking about the cruelty that animated so much of the pre- the former president's uh, appeal uh, to Americans, the, the really overt rhetorical cruelty that uh, Donald Trump often indulged to the cheers of his supporters, uh, as well as the cruelty of some of the policy agenda of of Donald Trump and why that appealed uh, to so many Americans. Uh, We'd love to hear from you during the conversation as well. Uh, Where do you see cruelty manifest in our political process and in our policies? Do you see the appeal to Donald Trump as a reflection of an innate kind of cruelty that uh, that lives inside uh, many Americans, the, the, the desire to exclude uh, and blame uh, certain groups uh, for the, 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 the problems that we have here uh, in America. Um, give us a sense of where you think we are now, that Donald Trump is gone. Is that cruelty still behind much of uh, the policy and uh, politics of the, the, the GOP? Um, do you see it in other parts of our body politic? Um, as always, we would love to hear from you on the phones at 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter at hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. Also, give us a call and let us know what you think we can do uh, to kind of heal the things that that propel that cruelty in our politics. What kinds of things would change the way that Americans feel about each other uh, and and uh, about people who are not always exactly like them? Again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter and put comments there. We'll try to include you in the conversation. Uh, Anna, I want to talk about um, how much of this is about race and whiteness in America and American politics. You spent a lot of time uh, in the book talking about otherism and bigotry being central uh, to this cruelty. Yeah, I mean, look, I think this is, uh, this kind of politics ultimately stems from a contradiction of our founding, which is, you know, a country uh, founded on the beautiful idea that uh, all are created equal. Uh, but one founded by uh, men who owned other people as uh, slaves. Um, and I think when you have a country that is based on on that ideal of equality, but you want to exclude people from that ideal, you have to come up with reasons to exclude them. You have to d- decide that, you know, uh, 
black people aren't people and so it's okay to enslave them. You have to say that uh, you know, white men who do not own property uh, shouldn't actually have the right to vote because they're ignorant and they don't have uh, you know, uh, 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 enough of an investment in the well-being of the country. Um, and throughout our history, we've had these conflicts where one, one faction of the United States is trying to extend the blessings of American liberty to a broader population and another faction is opposing it. Um, and this has led to you know, arguably the greatest conflicts in our history as a nation. Um, and it's just, it's part of our becoming a more perfect union, but it doesn't always work out with a happy ending. And, and how, does, how does America move on from that? I mean, these are problems that have really deep roots in our founding and, of course, in the 245 years that we've existed uh, since then. Is there a way to, to change that, that ease with which white Americans, many white Americans, identify with um, the idea of otherism or bigotry uh, when they think of other Americans? Look, I want to clarify that, you know, I don't think of this as a white thing. It's an ideological thing. Um, you know, I, I think sometimes when we say, you know, white can be descriptive and illuminating in that way, but I think sometimes we get to um, it can become blurry and we can think that this is some sort of a biological problem. It's not. Race is a biological fiction. This is an ideological issue. Uh, and right now, there are always going to be voters who have, you know, conservative views on immigration, who, who are devoted to their faith in a conservative way, uh, you know, who, who want conservative economic policies, lower taxes, fewer regulations. But we don't have to have a politics where one party is trying to disenfranchise the others, the other's constituency. Um, and it is true that this kind of politics relies substantially on a kind of white identity politics that says to uh, certain groups in the population that you're in danger, uh, your rights are going to be taken away, your way of life is going to be destroyed. Um, and, you know, our system, as I said earlier, incentivizes that kind of politics um, because it enhances, uh, you know, disproportionately uh, the uh, power of the most conservative segments of the electorate. And the only way to deal with that problem is to make the system more fair. The Democrats have a very narrow majority, and so they're, you know, they're afraid of making the kind of structural changes that would compel the Republican Party to reach outside of their base rather than trying to hang on to power by frightening the hell out of that base whenever they can. Um, but that's the, the, the only real uh, solution I see to this problem is, is you know, when both parties have to reach outside, uh, you know, when both parties have to serve uh, diverse constituencies, because we know from history that parties that do have to serve uh, uh, constituencies that are diverse ideologically, racially, uh, religiously, they tend to win votes rather than trying to disenfranch disenfranchise them. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with Adam Serwer of The Atlantic about his new book, The Cruelty is the Point. We'll also get to your comments. Uh, join us on the phones. 313-577-1019 is the number. Tell us what you think about cruelty in American politics, cruelty as it relates to Trumpism. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter, where we've already got a number of social media comments about this issue. We'll get to those next as well. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today.
Texas, Detroit Today. I'm Stephen Henderson, and my guest is Adam Serwer, staff writer at The Atlantic and author of the newly released book, The Cruelty is the Point, the Past, Present, and Future of Trump's America. We're talking about the role that cruelty plays in our politics, our current politics, our historic politics, uh, the role that Donald Trump played in surfacing more of that cruelty, uh, capitalizing on it, in fact, uh, with his supporters uh, to propel a, an agenda that was itself pretty cruel to a lot of Americans. We want to hear from you during this conversation as well. Tell us what role you think cruelty plays in our politics in America. What role did it play in the rise and popularity of, of Donald Trump? And now that he is no longer president, uh, is it still playing a role in our politics and particularly on the Republican side of the political spectrum? As always, the number here on the phones is 313 313- Five seven seven one zero one nine. That's three one three five seven seven one zero one nine. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter, put comments there, and uh, we'll include them in the conversation. Let's start with some of the Twitter comments we have here. Uh, Graham on Twitter says, "In the twenty twenty election, uh, your guest mentioned that Trump did not appeal to minorities. However, I've seen some reports that he gained six percentage points among black men and five points among." Latino women. Uh, what should we What should we make of this, uh, Adam? What do we make of the uh, minority support, ethnic minority support, for Donald Trump in 2020? Well, first of all, I, I absolutely did not say that about the 2020 election. And Donald Trump did improve his margins mm-hmm. somewhat with uh, black voters in 2020, um, and fairly substantially with um, Latino voters, particularly in, in South Florida and along the Rio Grande Valley. Um, you know, I think that's significant. I think it's important. Um, but, you know, it, it, and hopefully in the long term, maybe it helps change the character of the Republican Party as it currently exists. But, you know, in 1932, when Roosevelt won, you know, the black vote in the North, the Democratic Party was the party of Jim Crow. It mm-hmm. did not cease being the party of Jim Crow at that moment because black voters in the North um, who had come to believe that the Republican Party no longer was interested in defending their rights or serving their interests, found that they, uh, you know, that the Democrats' economic agenda might do more for them, um, even it, you know, considering that neither party was going to protect their civil rights. Uh, that did not immediately transform the Democratic Party into a non-racist institution. It was still the most white supremacist institution in American life at that time, um, at least major institution. Um, so you know, the fact that. Uh, Donald Trump improved his margins with minorities this time around is, you know, something it's important. It's a fact. It's something that people should know. But it doesn't actually change what Donald Trump stood for, what he believes or what he did as president. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, thanks very much for the comment, Graham. Let's go to the phones here uh, and start with Sid in Davisburg. Sid, welcome to the program. Are you there, Sid? Okay, Sid, give us a call back, and uh, we'll try to we'll try to get you into the conversation here. Uh, let's go to Bernadette in uh, Old Redford. Bernadette, welcome to the show. Thank you, Stephen. My mm-hmm. comment is in reference to Governor Whitmer. How the opposing party uh, has vilified her, tried to strip her of power that they wouldn't have taken away from Snyder. Mm-hmm. And all she wanted to do was keep our citizens from dying, mainly by wearing a face mask. 
They also held hostage money that can that they didn't have to spend out of their own treasury to benefit our students. Again, uh, just to be cruel to her. Yeah, uh, uh, Bernadette, um, uh, no question that, uh, that that those are great examples of the kind of the kind of uh, again uh, animus, I guess that that seems to be behind some of the things uh, that the GOP uh, have been doing. Uh, Adam, well, look, this is a this yeah, is ahead. an extension of this is an extension of the ideology that Donald Trump has before, um, which is not something he came up with. It's something that he. Um, he capitalized uh, on performed. Yeah. He performed very effectively, but he didn't come up with it. I mean, the Republican Party has come to think of themselves um, in part because of their homogeneity as the uh, only legitimate governing party in the United States. So, so Democrats who hold office are actually fundamentally illegitimate because they got there through fraud, through uh, manipulation, through or through the votes of people who are not truly American. Um, and so the Republican Party, as the only legitimate governing party, is entitled both to take drastic measures uh, to prevent Democrats from taking power or to not recognize their authority when they are in power because they fundamentally do not recognize. They are not Democrats do not represent the only true Americans, um, people who are entitled to permanent political hegemony in the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, Bernadette, thanks for the call. In the comments, let's go back to Sid in Davisburg. Sid, welcome to the show. Are you there, Sid? <laughs> okay, Sid, you're obviously having uh, trouble with your phones. Uh, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and ask Sid's question uh, myself. Uh, she's talking about Trump using the Hitler handbook uh, in, uh, in his campaign. Uh, she's comparing what... Uh, what Trump did to what uh, what Hitler did in in Germany? Yeah, look, I, I, I want to be something. I, I want to be clear about something. Um, America has its own traditions of unfreedom, um, and those traditions typically present themselves as defenses of democracy, even as they seek to disenfranchise particular populations. Mm-hmm. There's actually no need to reach over into Europe um, to find examples of unfreedom. We have them here. We have. Uh, you know, redemption after Reconstruction. We have the Jim Crow system. We have uh, American chattel slavery. Uh, it's not really necessary to reach into analogies um, like that one, which I understand the appeal because uh, Hitler is such an odious figure that associating uh, the person you're criticizing with them automatically makes them look bad. But Donald Trump is a manifestation of American ideological currents. He's not something that was imposed on us, uh, you know, by some sort of foreign influence. Mm-hmm. And, and yet there's a there's a chapter in your book uh, called The Cruelty of the Nativists, which does sort of invoke this this very uh, virulent strain in an American sense uh, mm-hmm. of of exclusion on the basis of, of national origin and national identity, which which does reflect things that we've seen uh, in other countries as well. Yeah, I mean, look, the the the, the immigration law, American immigration laws of the 1920s were based on the false race science of eugenics, um, and they excluded not only uh, Asian and African immigrants from coming to the United States, but they were also targeted uh, at Southern Europeans like Italians or Greeks, and as well as Eastern Europeans like Jews. They were based on racist beliefs um, that did end up influencing the Nazis, um, but those beliefs were. You know, those ideological beliefs were developed here. 
Um, and ultimately, those laws were repealed um, as you know uh, as one of the the lesser appreciated accomplishments of the Lyndon Johnson administration in the 1960s. Um, but you know they weren't. Impl- I mean, the first immigration law in the United States limited naturalization, and this was you know the first Congress ever of the United States limited naturalization to free white persons. So this is what I'm talking about when I talk about the origins of this politics of cruelty and exclusion. It's not something that Donald Trump invented. It's not something that uh, only belongs to one party or one ideology. It's something that's been a part of the sort of contradictory American idea since the beginning. Uh, Jim S. on Twitter says, I saw cruelty on the far left by mostly white young males against anyone who opposed their vision or their candidates. Example, for uh, Elizabeth Warren was a, quote, snake based on a policy stance. It got very ugly, mean, and cruel on a micro level. Uh, I think that's a really interesting example to invoke here, Adam, this idea that you were just talking about. This doesn't live just in one party or one ideology, this cruelty uh, that you're talking about uh, uh, finds a home in lots of different places. And as Jim points out, uh, on the far left, we, we, we have seen some of that same strain that uh, that you can hear and feel in support for, for Donald Trump. Look, I'll, I'll, I'll give an example here. I live in Texas. So when we had a huge ice storm, um, I was scrolling through social media and I saw lots of people saying, well, that's what you get for voting for Greg Abbott. Um, you know, I didn't vote for Greg Abbott, um, but, you know, because of this sort of electoral map where people think of entire states as red or as red or blue states, they don't think about the fact that millions and millions of Democrats live in California, live in uh, Texas and millions of Republicans live in California. They just think of these states as somehow embodying a particular political ideology and forget that they're actual human beings who live in these places. But there's a difference. Um, you know, when California had rolling blackouts, uh, you know, Ted Cruz, the senator of Texas, was calling California a failed state and making fun of them. And when Texas was dealing with an ice storm, the governor of California was not mocking Texas. He wasn't doing that because the Democratic Party has to serve a more diverse constituency, uh, you know, ideologically, racially, religiously. And so they can't afford to simply engage in that kind of politics in the way that Republicans can. It's, it's a you know, they, it, what I'm talking about here is a manifestation of cruelty on a political level. Uh, certainly anybody of any political persuasion is capable of cruelty because cruelty is a part of human nature. Um, but what restrains it uh, is a, a politi- it, when it comes to political parties is when that party has to serve a diverse constituencies. And, and the, the fact that the GOP doesn't feel like it needs to serve that diverse constituency is at the central sort of uh, space of tension within within the party. I mean, I know a lot of Republicans here in Michigan, in Washington, who are struggling mightily to broaden the party's base. Uh, and, and in some ways, uh, they will talk pretty openly about that being one of the levers to pull to, to, to tamp down on some of the, the anger and the cruelty uh, that that Trump has you know ramped up and really and really leaned into over the last uh, over the last five years. I mean, I think in a multiracial democracy, uh, the kind of tolerance um, that cultivates uh, the, the, the kind of tolerance that cultivates you know um, true integration and brotherhood between communities comes from sharing power. 
so when you have a party that has to unite hipsters in Greenpoint, Brooklyn with church ladies in South Carolina, mm-hmm. that requires, you know, having to figure out a way for very different people to work together. Um, and when you don't have that kind of coalition, it is very easy to demonize the people who are on the outside. Okay, we're going to take another quick break. And when we come back, we'll continue this conversation with Adam Serwer. We'll also continue to hear from you, the listeners, Tim in Detroit, Anthony in Southwest Detroit. We'll get to you next if you want to join them. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter and uh, we'll try to work you into the conversation that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. News, music, culture, and community. Every day on 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station. This is Detroit Today. I'm Stephen Henderson, and my guest is Adam Serwer, staff writer for The Atlantic and author of a really provocative new book called The Cruelty is the Point, the Past, Present, and Future of Trump's America. We're talking about cruelty and the role it plays in American politics, the role it played in the popularity of the former president and what it means for American politics now, that he is no longer the president and not so much of an influential uh, voice uh, in our politics. Uh, What do you think of the cruelty that we see in American politics? Where does it come from? How do we get to a place where it doesn't play as big a role as it does right now? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can go to Facebook and Twitter, too. And we'll try to include you in the show that way. Let's go back to the phones here. Anthony, in southwest Detroit, you're up next. What's on your mind? Hi. Hey, good morning, Stephen, and the guest. Um, I, yeah, I, you know, was pretty dismayed by the cruelty of Trump and so much that I even, you know, made social media posts into my friends and family. I said, oh, if you voted for Trump, don't defriend me and stuff like that, because he was really cruel and he was racist and all that bad stuff, overtly. But... Uh, you know, I, I really think uh, it's kind of weird to even honestly be talking about this like so long after the fact of uh, Trump's presidency. And uh, mm. I think it's really uh, just kind of out of the context of let's talk about the cruelty of the government and this uh, system we're living under and that the cruelty that inflicts uh, upon the populace. Like, I think we're really missing the mark here mm. on a big scale. Hmm. Uh, Anthony, I appreciate the the call and the comments. Uh, Adam, how do you answer that? Uh, well, I think that's one of the points of the book is that this is not about one man. Um, this is incentivized by our current system of governance. And that's why, even though he's gone, the Republican Party has continued on this course of trying to disenfranchise Democratic constituencies so they can insulate uh, their power from the public while they've uh, you know continued to go after uh, passing laws, discriminating against trans children. Uh, you know, th- these things are a manifestation of the kind of politics that is rewarding for them, which is finding a vulnerable community, blaming um, the country's problems on that vulnerable community, which lacks the political power to to truly respond effectively. 
um, and, you know, winning and wielding power in that way. Um, and the book, you know, the point of the book is that uh, our system incentivizes that approach to politics, which is why, you know, the fact that Donald Trump is gone hasn't fundamentally changed the way that Republican parties work all over the country. Um, but I would also add is that, you know, I would really love to move on from Trump as a human being. The problem is that his pronouncements continue to be of paramount importance within the Republican Party mm -hmm. to the point where now you have Republican officials, not only, um, you know, it's, it is not only a requirement within the Republican Party to either be silent about um, the president's uh, manufactured uh lies about voter fraud in the, in the 2020 election, but you have to sort of either not say anything or support it. If you speak out against it, like Liz Cheney, you can lose your position in the party. Um, and that is that dynamic is extending itself to the January 6th Capitol riot, um, where now the president is, you know, the former president is slowly uh, trying to transform what was a violent attempt uh, to keep him in power, to overthrow the results of a presidential election as a kind of heroic battle for a democracy. And this is what I was talking about earlier. The American tradition of unfreedom always presents itself as a defense of democracy, not as its grave digger. Um, and so while I personally um, would like to focus on the system that produced Trump um, rather than the man himself, and that's what the book does, uh, you know, the man continues to be influential um, because of his role within the party. And he is further radicalizing them against democracy in a way that's dangerous uh, to ignore. Mm. Uh, you talk in the book about how the January 6th insurrection sort of harkens back to a coup in Wilmington in uh, 1898. Can you talk about that forgotten chapter of our nation's history? Yeah, I mean, look, uh, the Wilmington coup uh, was a coup by white supremacist Democrats in North Carolina. It destroyed a thriving black middle class community um, in, in the late 19th century. Um, and the coup plotters presented themselves as uh, fighting against injustice. They saw themselves as battling against the tyranny of the uh, interracial coalition that was governing Wilmington. Um, they said that, you know, the founders never intended for them to be subordinate uh, to black men in this way that is having to acquiesce to political victories that have involved black support. Um, and what's significant about the coup in Wellington is not just that it's the only successful coup d'etat on American soil, but that what followed was a wave of violence and disenfranchisement against black men because uh, the federal government did not respond. They stayed silent. They did not punish the perpetrators of the uh, of the Wilmington coup. They got away with it. And with that said, the message that that sent across the South was that there would not be any consequences for engaging in that kind of political violence. Hmm. Um, and what we're seeing, right, you know, the, the, the Capitol riot was nowhere near as dangerous. It was sort of an echo of that history as farce. Uh, but the problem is that if it is not sufficiently punishment was not. The president was impeached, but not convicted. The Republicans are blocking a, you know, tried to block a commission into investigating the Capitol riot because they agree with the underlying claim of the rioters uh, that Joe Biden's victory was illegitimate because he represents parts of the country that they do not consider fully American. Um, and so that, that I'm very sorry, that, that kind of politics it, 
the threat to American democracy comes from the kind of politics that views the other side as so legitimate that that kind of political violence is justified in order to maintain uh, one party's dominance of our political institutions. Yeah. Uh, and although, you know, the Republican Party today is far less racist and violent than the Democratic Party of that era, uh, they've nonetheless come to believe in the, come to uh, assert this ideological belief that the rival party cannot legitimately represent the people of the United States. Yeah. yeah. Uh, again, uh, thanks for the call and the thoughts, Anthony. Let's go to Tim in Detroit. Tim, welcome to the show. Hello, Stephen and your hey. guest. Uh, yeah. I, I, you know, back in the day when uh, they would uh, hang uh, people for teaching black folks to read, you know, they claimed they were the smartest and, then they were, the, uh, you know, the best boxers and then the, the best athletes and, and the smartest. But today, all of that has been dispelled. So what's, what's the basis of their supremacy or, or, or right to government today? I mean, what is hmm. it based on today? Hmm. Good question, uh, Adam. So, um, you know, one of the things I write about in the book is the cognitive dissonance between people saying, you know, I'm not racist at all. I love everyone and also supporting discriminatory policy. Mm -hmm. um, and there is a sort of, you know, th th this is a sort of cognitive dissonance that's necessary in a country that's founded on these, this principle of human equality um, to, to, to exclude certain people from the political process. Um, and from what I can tell, you know, Republicans have convinced themselves that they are uh, you know, the true inheritors of America's legacy, that the uh, voters that Democrats rely on are either not truly American or they are manipulated and ignorant. And therefore, it is justifiable to um, uh, try to uh, engineer the political system uh, to ensure Republican victories or make them more likely. Hmm. Uh, but it is yeah. not, it is not, you know, as far, I mean, there are certainly obviously some people who believe in that kind of overt um, white supremacy, but as far as I can tell right now, it is, you know, people who think those things in, in the United States, they try to tell themselves that those are not the things that they believe. They try yeah. to find another justification um, for, uh, you know, m measures, anti-democratic measures taken to preserve their political power. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, again, thanks, Tim, for the call and uh, the comments. Let's go to Mark in Redford Township. Mark, welcome to the show. Stephen, good morning. Hey. Very interesting conversation. Thank you. Um, as a historian myself, uh, I've observed that um, many professors, one such at uh, Wayne State University down there, Sylvia Tasca, mm -hmm. has offered courses on the history of terrorism to supplement their curriculums. And I think this conversation this morning ties in what this former administration was trying to ide ideologically um, um, portray. And you know, your guest talked about Nazism and uh, the link to terrorism with the Hitler administration, of course, the Third Reich. But um, my main point, again, is that many history professors are offered curriculums that um, observe terrorist um, um, uh, parts of our history. Hmm. Uh, Mark, I appreciate the the call and and the thoughts there. Uh, Adam, Adam, react to what he's talking about here. Uh, well, certainly, I think America has a long history of political violence um, against black people, against workers, um, that is not as well known as it should be. 
Um, and, you know, certainly uh, it would be good if we had a more realistic understanding of the role that violence has played in American history, um, because we don't have it now. On the other hand, you know, one of the reasons why you see, I mean, until recently, why you saw Republicans saying that, you know, the uh, Capitol riot was a, an inside job or a false flag or, you know, Antifa was responsible. It's because political violence today remains very unpopular. Um, and if that changes, we're, we are definitely in big trouble. And, and inside the party, again, the struggle over, over all of this seems to be, um, you know, it seems to be at the core of, of the, of what it means to be a member of the GOP right now. I mean, you, you do have much of the established GOP at least abetting uh, this this cruelty and and the the, the lurch toward violence uh, through its official acts. I mean, as you point out, the, the the blocking of an investigation of a commission into into what happened on January 6th and whether members of Congress might uh, have some culpability for that or, or, were, or were part of that. Um, uh, that's being done by, uh, the, by the people in charge of the party in, in, in Congress. And yet uh, you still have uh, you know, rank-and-file Republicans and voters, some, saying we've got to go in a different direction. Um, uh, in the book, you talk about 2012 and... Uh, the loss that Mitt Romney suffered to Barack Obama and what that moment was supposed to inspire in terms of soul-searching uh, in the GOP. Boy, if you cast that forward nine years, um, that, that tension is, is worse, and, and the struggle for control of, of the party and its message uh, is, is still at just uh, uh, peak intensity. Look, I think it's it's very tempting to want to frame this as a question of individual moral virtue. Uh, you know, if um, you know if Republicans were simply simply stood up and were braver, you know, this would be different. Hmm. Um, but part of my argument is that this is a structural issue. As long as their means to power comes through, um, you know, feeding their base with these kinds of conspiracy theories, um, whether they're about Muslims, whether they're about uh, immigrants, whether they're about uh, you know. Democrats, uh, you know, supposedly, uh, you know, imposing socialism and ending democracy in the United States. Um, this kind of politics, as long as they can hold power um, by doing it, they're going to keep doing it. It's not a question, you know, it's not something, you know, individual moral uh, righteousness it cannot overcome a system that is designed to do a particular thing. So if the Democrats want this to change, they have within their ability, if they so choose, to make our system more fair in a way that will compel the Republican Party to reach beyond this ba their base and cease this kind of politics or at least diminish it. Um, but until that happens, we are going to see them keep walking down this path. Until they pay a political cost for this kind of politics, they are going to continue to pursue it. Uh, let's go to Susan in Troy. Susan, I've got about two minutes left, but I wanted to get you in here. Well, I just think a big part of of Part of his cruelty that stands out to me is towards the Asian population, Asian Americans, and he refuses to call the virus the COVID virus or the coronavirus. He always has to refer to it as the China virus, Wuhan flu, and that has caused now people on the streets, legit citizens of the U.S. are being attacked 
And for no reason except that they blame them for bringing the virus here, which they had nothing to do directly. And whether we find out a definitive answer, yes or no, was this from a lab, from a wet market, it doesn't excuse his cruelty in his terminology to a whole base of people that make up our economy. And I, I just, it, it glares at me every time I hear, I see his face and his, it's awful. Uh, Susan, th- I'm really glad you called and and gave us that example because uh, it's not one that we've talked about. Uh, Adam, the manipulation of information about coronavirus uh, by the president was was an example of this this lean toward cruelty as the answer uh, to, to to serious problems that the the nation faces. I've got about a minute left. So, look, I mean, obviously, you know, anti-Asian racism predates the president, uh, the former president. Um, He certainly did not. uh, He was not careful to uh, try to um, tamp it down. He seemed to want to exploit it. And there's an irony there, of course, because he was extremely deferential uh, to the Chinese government Mm -hmm. uh, in the early days of the pandemic because he he was trying to manipulate the uh, Americans into believing the virus could not be a problem. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think you can blame entirely this wave of anti-Asian hatred on Donald Trump, but it's uh, certainly a, a, an issue that he did not adequately respond to and may have exacerbated. Yeah. Okay. Adam Sirwer, staff writer at The Atlantic. Uh, always great to have you here for conversations on the show. Congratulations on the new book. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Okay. That is going to do it for us this week. Come back Monday when we talk with Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin about infrastructure, the recent flooding here in southeast Michigan, and with the withdrawal from uh, Afghanistan that uh, President Joe Biden has announced. It's going to be a really interesting conversation uh, with Congresswoman Slotkin. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again on Monday.